plans for my crazy day. My packed commute. All those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. <laughs> Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash get more. You are locked on Packers, your daily podcast on the Green Bay Packers, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. And you are locked on Packers. Hello, this is Bill Huber, the publisher of PackReport.com, part of the Scout.com network, which brings some of the best NFL and college football coverage that you will find anywhere. Got a really good show today for you. You might have heard that there's a new Brett Favre book out by author Jeff Perlman. It's called Gunslinger. That book comes out today. And I talked to him yesterday, and he'll be on the podcast here in just a moment. First, a little bit of Packers news from Monday. They play safety Chris Banjo and wide receiver Jared Aberderis in injury reserve and promoted defensive back Jermaine Whitehead and wide receiver Geronimo Allison from the practice squad. The big, new, the big move here will be the promotion of Whitehead. The Packers need cornerback help. Um, ESPN.com's Rob Domofsky, my good friend over there, Reported that Demarius Randall had groin surgery. He'll be out four to six weeks probably. Leaves the Packers obviously shorthanded at safety or shorthanded at corner without Randall here for a month or so. And with Sam Shields already on IR. A typical Ted Thompson move though. You can go out and get a veteran or you can promote from within and that's going to be Whitehead. Whitehead is a safety, but he played some corner. More accurately, he played a lot in the slot during training camp in the preseason. Kind of like Micah Hyde, where he'd play safety on one down, and he'd go in and play in the slot on another down. So, so he's got some versatility there. And Randall played a lot in the slot, as you know, too. So I, I guess clearly it's the plan going forward. Well, they'll go with Rollin, or they'll go with Quentin Rollins, Ladarius Gunter, and Dimitri Goodson probably as their top three. And then they'll have Whitehead to give him some uh, a little bit of depth there. And you know, with his ability to play in the slot, and you know, Rollins can play inside or outside, and and so can Micah Hyde, and, and so they get, at least gives him some depth. But again, a, t- a typical, typical Thompson move. I mean, I was asked about, do they go sign Antonio Cromartie? Do they sign Brandon Brown or a couple of proven veteran guys, maybe past or prime, but proven veteran guys? And, you know, typical of the Packers, the answer to that is no, and they go with, go with the young guy. You know, one, one note about Whitehead, during his final season in Auburn, he was suspended for four games for running with the coach. Nonetheless, he intercepted six passes that year. He went undrafted last year, um, spent most of, the, most of the year in the practice squad, got signed by the Ravens late in the year and, and spent a couple weeks on the Ravens regular season roster at the end of the year. So, and the other move there, Geronimo Allison, um, that news I broke yesterday. You know, Aberderis, a big disappointment. There's really no other way to spin that. He had a great training camp, had a great preseason, and he thought, this is the year that Aberderis, he's healthy, He's putting it all together. He's clearly got Aaron Rodgers' trust. This is the year where he goes out and does something. And it just never happened. It was the darndest thing. I mean, the coaches would say week after week, his time's going to come, his time's going to come. It never came. You know what? You could have argued that it should have been Jared Aberderis and not Devontae Adams as the number three receiver behind Nelson and Cobb entering the regular season. Now, clearly, Adams has had a great start, and the coaches made the right call there because Adams is having his off to a you know, he's on his way to having a terrific year. But you could have added, I mean, you could argue that Adams, that Aberdares had a better camp than, than Aberdares. There were 
then uh, Aberdares had a better camp than Adamstead, and it just never worked out. And so they'll give they'll give the, a shot here to Geronimo Allison, the six foot three undrafted rookie from Illinois. You know, one thing to consider here: Jeff Janis has caught four out of seven passes. Aberdares caught one out of two. Trevor Davis zero out of two. So that's that's combined what five out of eleven. If those guys have played. I mean, Janice has played a, a pretty fair number of snaps since he came back from the hand injury. And Davis has, I mean, they, they've all played. I mean, Aberdeer is less than the others. They haven't done anything. And you know what? Maybe it's time to give someone else a shot here. So, from that perspective, I think this is a good. I think this is a good move. And you know, Aberdeer wasn't didn't have a serious injury as a thigh contusion. Contusion, a, a fancy word for a bruise. Probably missed a few weeks, but. You know, I've been kind of waiting for this move here for a little bit here. Maybe it's time to give Allison a shot. He had a really good training camp. Had made some plays in the preseason. You know, Aaron Rodgers raved about him. I was looking back at my training camp quotes. Raved about him three times during training camp. You know, once he was even asked about Allison. He just asked about, you know, the depth of the position. And he pointed out Geronimo Allison at the time, who clearly had no chance to make the team. Just You figure just based on the the returning talent. So Rodgers likes the kid, so you know why, why not? Maybe, maybe he'll give him a shot in the arm. And you know, one more thing here, I was asked about on Twitter: Why seven receivers? Why do you need seven receivers? They don't have seven receivers. Ty Montgomery is a running back. Aaron Rodgers said it himself after the game uh, on Thursday night. And yes, he's playing a lot at running back by necessity, but Ty Montgomery was taking snaps. I, mean, I remember at practice, probably week two. I think I've told the story before. We're, we're, it was a, a shooting period, as in we can go take our cameras out and shoot videos or pictures of it. And Ty, and Ty is running. He's he's practicing with the running backs. I mean, he's going through pass protection drills and everything else. And I go to the, the you know the head of the PR staff, Jason Wallers. I go, what do you, what should we do with this? I mean, you got your wide receiver solely with the running backs. I mean, you don't want this made public, do you? So he runs over to Coach Mike McCarthy and they have a short conversation. And then we have to stop shooting. We can't we can't run any of the video. But nonetheless, this is he's been at running back for what five weeks now or something like that. I mean, he this this he's playing a lot because of injuries. But this move was made before Lacey and Starks got injured. So I mean, look, he's a running back, and this gives him six receivers. You know what? And, and you know, maybe Jeff Janice is going to be a special teams guy only, and and that's that. But I, I'm, I'm interested to see if Allison can. Can give a lift to a, an offense that's really going to be centered on the passing game here for the short term. The Packers are two and a half point underdogs for Sunday's game at Atlanta. Are you ready to get into the action? Check out BetDSI.com. They've been in business for more than 20 years. They're top rated business and safe. BetDSI has a great special. Sign up today and get $10 free to try their service. BetDSI is also offering a 100% bonus on your first deposit. They've got great customer service, fast and easy payment of winnings. They've got hundreds of football and basketball wagers to choose from. They've also got UFC, even Trump versus Clinton odds to bet on the election. BetDSI even has live in-game wagering on all football, basketball, and other major sporting events. You can play virtually everything at BetDSI. It is a really cool thing, too. It's called the Free Street Contest. You can win up to $25,000 in the Bet DSI Free Street Contest. All you have to do to earn money is start picking winners. You can earn money simply with a five-game winning streak. And if you can put together a winning streak of 21, you'll win $25,000 in cash. And it doesn't cost anything to get started. The contest is free 
to BetDSI members. So go to BetDSI.com now. That's BetDSI.com. Go there now and use my promo code PACKERS10, that's PACKERS10, and get your free wager and start winning today. I'm pleased to welcome my guest for the show, Jeff Perlman, the author of the Brett Favre biography, Gunslinger. A towering figure on the field for two decades who breezed into the Hall of Fame, Brett Favre was one of the game's last Cowboys, a fastball-throwing, tobacco-chewing gunslinger who refused to give up without a fight. This peerless quarterback guided the Green Bay Packers to two Super Bowls and one championship win, shattering countless NFL records along the way. Gunslinger tells Brett Favre's story for the first time, drawing on more than 500 interviews, including many from the people closest to Favre. Jeff Perlman charts an unparalleled journey from his rough rural childhood and lackluster high school football career to landing the last scholarship of Southern Mississippi to a car accident that nearly took his life. Favre clawed back, getting drafted into the NFL by the Atlanta Falcons, then finding his way to Green Bay, where he restored the Packers to greatness and inspired a fan base passionate as any in the game. Yet he struggled with demons, addiction, infidelity, the loss of his father, and a fraught, painfully long exit from the game he loved, a game he couldn't bear to leave. All right, Jeff, first of all, um, why? Why do it? Why do the book? I think everyone knows about Brett, probably not everything about Brett, so, so why Brett Favre? Well, I think you actually, that question kind of is, a, is an interesting, it almost surprising answer. Um, you know, years ago, I did a book about Walter Payton. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, you think like, oh, I know everything about Walter Payton. He played for the Bears. Maybe he's from Mississippi. He was upset about not scoring in the Super Bowl. You know, like, we, we died young. And um, the truth of the matter is, with athletes and really with celebrities of a certain magnitude, um, we know much less than we think. And I don't mean that, like, searching for scandal way. Like, I'm not searching for scandal. I just mean, like, we hear the basics, and then we regurgitate the basics. And I'm a member of the media, so I've been as guilty as this as anyone. We kind of get lazy about it. Like, we'll tell the same five stories over and over again. You know, we'll pretend they're interesting, even though after a while they get boring. And especially with the reduced sort of media force in this country due to cutoffs and layoffs and reduced ratings and newspapers closing, we do much less reporting than we used to. So... I feel like, yeah, it feels like we know Brett Favre, but I don't think we really do, you know? And so I took two years. I just found him really fascinating, and I, I thought he was this iconic guy. I thought we were, we were past the whole retire, unretire thing long enough that people weren't sick of him anymore. Sure. You know, like, I, could, I couldn't have written this three years ago or four years ago. People would have been like, I don't want to hear another word about Brett Favre ever. Um, but I feel like enough time has passed that he's iconic, he was a superstar, he's fascinating, and... I kind of felt like the same five questions were told. You know, we always heard about Oakland and Monday Night Football. I mean, that story was told a million times. And, you know, we know about Vicodin, you know, but we, so we know all the basics, but what do we really know? And that was sort of what guided me through this book. Like, what don't I know about Brett Favre? And there was a lot, a lot. Okay, so I'm going to ask you this question now, then later. No, I'll, I'll ask you the after question later, but, but before you did this book, what did you think of him as a person? <clears throat> I was, I was just horrified, 
I mean, just horrified. I thought it was really gross and nasty. And then I felt kind of bad for him because he's not the first athlete to take a picture of his penis and put on the uh, and send it to someone, but he's the first to have it shown to six million people on Deadspin. So <laughs> while I didn't condone the act, I actually, after a while, I kind of felt bad for him because it was so humiliating. But um, I'd say my general take was like fatigue, kind of tired of this guy, great quarterback. I could do without hearing about him. And having written the book and spent this much time on it, it's totally different. I find him redeemable, um, flawed, like we are. I think he had a lot of lows from the addiction to infidelity, the way he treated his wife. Uh, you know, he had a lot of lows. But I think ultimately what's kind of cool about him, and it was the same for Walter Payton, actually, is he, he sort of learned from his mistakes. He grew up. The guy he was at 27 is the guy he is at 47. Um, and his journey was really fascinating, like really fascinating to me. 573 people. That's uh, I, I can't imagine doing that kind of legwork. Um, but I, I guess you have to, right? If if the the subject's not going to cooperate, hey. I would do it even if the subject did cooperate. Okay. So me, um, I I just think if you're going to do a definitive biography and you really want it to be known as definitive, you can't just. If, you know, I always the first thing I always do when I go to a uh, to a book, I go to bookstores all the time because you're always looking to see what's out there, what could be written, what has been written. And whenever I look at biographies. The first thing I do is go to the back and see how many people they interviewed. Sometimes I'll list them. Sometimes I'll allude to them. You'll see them in the thank yous. And I don't understand how you can write a biography of uh, whoever, Magic Johnson, and only talk to Kareem, Michael Cooper, and Kurt Rambis and Pat Riley. It doesn't make sense. Because um, guys with the best stories are often, if not always, people who are there for a brief period of time. They're like... Um, I have this sort of guiding philosophy, and I developed it when I was growing I grew up in a small town, Mayo Pack, New York. And when I was a freshman in high school, there was a kid who lived up a block from me named Dave Fleming, who went on the pitch for the Seattle Mariners. Okay. The tangent, there's a point to it. And um, I didn't really know him. And one day I'm on the bus. I'm a freshman, and Dave was on the bus, which was rare. He never took the bus. And I asked someone a trivia question. It was, who led the Rams in rushing in the Super Bowl when they lost to the, to the Steelers? And... Uh, Dave Fleming turned around from the seat and said, Wendell Tyler. And I always, or Dave Fleming would have no recollection of that because he was Dave Fleming, the great Dave Fleming, and I was just some, some guy. And I always think that's kind of my guiding philosophy to writing about people like Brett Favre. Like, Brett Favre isn't going to remember the free agent running back from Delaware State who was in camp with the Packers in 1996. But the free agent running back from Delaware State who was in camp in 1996 is 100% going to remember Brett Favre, and he's going to remember how he treated him, if he was nice to him, if he was mean to him, um, what his ball felt like when he threw it to him. Maybe he bought him lunch. Maybe he gave him a candy bar. Maybe he blew him off. But those moments are invaluable. Invaluable. Because how you treat people who don't matter that much to your life is an incredibly powerful gauge of who you are as a person. So, of course, Brett Favre is going to be nice to uh, Donald Driver. And, of course, he's going to be respectful of Mike Holmgren. But how do you treat these people who come and go from their life, the person who sells you your house, the person who mows your lawn? Those are really important gauges. So I always want, that's, that's where the 573 comes from a lot of times. It's calling all the people, not just the main people, but also the people on the margins. You, uh, it's interesting that, so, so Brett declined to participate, am I right? But, but obviously the, the family jumped in wholeheartedly, hey? <clears throat> he did. Yeah, it was a weird, um, I gotta say, it's a weird one. So uh, I've had, you know, you do this long enough, you have people who agree to talk, and you have people who disagree to talk, or don't agree to talk. And uh, I had interviews set up with Five. Uh, he works with a website called Score. Right. And, uh, and 
I still don't understand what score does. If you could if you can go to that site <laughs> and figure it out, you'll be smarter than uh, Einstein. Stephen Hawking's still trying to figure out what scores, but he works with a website score, and um, they set up a couple of interviews. So you know, nine o'clock on Thursday, call Brett Favre. All right, I call nine, nothing. Two o'clock on Friday, call Brett Favre, nothing. Um, so and I sent him books with a letter, and eventually he texted me and explained he didn't want to talk and totally fine and cordial. But in the meantime. I added uh, his sister, his wonderful sister, Brandy, as a Facebook friend, and she accepted. And when I went to Mississippi to report the book, I, um, I just sent her a message, and I said, uh, any chance you want to grab coffee? And she said, well, why don't we, uh, you want to come over to the house? Okay. And I, I said, of course, I'll come over to, of course, never turn that down, you know, if someone invites you over the house. So uh, I go to the house, she's there, Brett's mom, Benita, is there. We probably spent four hours talking. They sent me home with scrapbooks. Wow. Getting, you know, so I got the mom, the sister, the brother, the brother. Cousins, uncles, aunts. Um, I mean, they're a wonderful family, like a wonderful family. Just giving people. And, and my wife, I've told the story, but it's really true. I was driving home from Benita's house, and I called my wife, and, and was giddy. I was like, man, this is amazing. This is the best day. And she goes, don't you think it's weird? And I'm like, well, I don't know. What do you mean? And she said, well, Brett's not you, but his family's talking to you. Imagine if someone was doing a book on you. Yeah. And I said, I said, yeah, I totally get it, but it's like, uh, I can't really explain it that well to you, but it's like, uh, it's kind of Mississippi. Like, you took the time to show up, pull up a chair on the front porch, I'm going to have a cigarette, her, not me, I'm going to have a cigarette, <laughs> a Coke, or something, and we'll just talk. It's weird, but they're so, I found it with Walter Payton also from Mississippi, too. It's like, in New York, we're very, I'm a New Yorker, I live in California, but in New York, we're very, like, get the hell away from me. You know, and in California, it's the same kind of thing. Nah, man, I don't, I don't think so. Something about Mississippi, you show up, you took the time to come, they'll talk to you. It's the best way I can explain it. I always thought that, maybe I'm wrong, I, I'm kind of going off my own notes here, but I always thought that the family really, really liked being Brett Favre's family, and, they, and maybe that was kind of, kind of the root of all the stuff that happened at the end of Favre's career. I, I always thought that. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. How... He maybe he was hemming and hawing and retiring, but maybe there's people within his family who kind of, kind of kept trying to pull him back, and that, that was always my thoughts. Yeah, I don't know. I um, I mean, certainly without question, they liked having Brett Favre as a relative. I mean, I don't know many people who wouldn't, if you think about it. I mean, the guy was a superstar, a Hall of Fame quarterback, so that's a, certainly a great uh, element of pride. I think his dad, uh, who's deceased, Irv, mm-hmm. certainly loved being Brett Favre's dad. Like it was a bragging point. It was, you know, for him, it was huge. That's what, That was his identity. His identity became Brett Favre's dad. Uh, his mom, um, I think it was up and down. You know, I think she certainly took pride. She loves her son. She's a, she was a great mom. He was a good kid for her, blah, blah, blah. I also think there was a lot of embarrassment. You know, the, uh, the addiction was really hard uh, on that family. The, the photos with the Jets. Right. Are you million? I mean, that was. A, think about that for a minute. Imagine if that was someone you were, you loved. Like your number one thing would be like, what the hell are you thinking? But your number two thing would be profound pain for their embarrassment. No matter how awful the thing they did, and it was awful. It really was awful if you think about it. Like it was profoundly embarrassing. So I think being a family member of Brett Favre came with complications. I mean, the other thing is, you know, his his brother had a DUI where the passenger, a close family friend, died. Yep. His sister had a couple of arrests. And these are things you would never have heard about if they weren't related to Brett Favre. Sure. So, 
you know, it's like, uh, it's like that movie Ed TV where a cameraman follows, you know, follows him around all the time. And at first you think the fame is going to be amazing. And then after a while you realize, crap, this isn't what it's cracked up to be. I think for the Farr family, uh, the blissful anonymity that came in the past was lost. And I think there was a, there's good and bad with that. Since we're on the topic of family, I, I was going to ask you for your impressions of a bunch of them here. Obviously, you got, you got to start with his dad. Obviously, that they were. That's a, that's an unbelievable bond between those two. Yeah, his dad was interesting. I didn't know. So I'm like you, probably. This is what I knew of Irfar. I knew like kind of big lug, out of his dad, football coach, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is true. He was definitely a big lug, and he was proud of his son. Um, I feel like the portrait that was painted of him by um, I'm in a, I'm in a McDonald's by the way, so if it's loud, I apologize. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the portrait that was painted of him was a little misleading. Um, he was a very bad husband. Uh, he was a, a, you know, I would say probably a drunk. He would say he was he was definitely battled with some semblance of alcoholism. Um, I think he, I think he loved the thing. I mean, he loved being Brett Favre's dad, and he loved all the perks that came with it. And he was a guy who, uh, I mean, was, to be blunt, was, like, really inappropriate with women. Was a guy who would, you know, with his wife nearby, would be hitting on the waitress, you know? Um, so I don't know. He's, I'm very conflicted. And you'll, if you read about him in the book, there's literally a chapter called Big Irv. You'll find yourself loving him and loathing him. I feel like that's sort of the best way to put it. He's, he's contemptible, and he's also sort of uh, admirable. See, this is why I couldn't do what you do. I don't know how you talk about that with his wife and all. I mean, I obviously you did. I that, that's uh, that had to be a difficult conversation or difficult conversations. My uh, my wife always says she always says she's like I couldn't do what you do. Right. And the funny thing, not that it's like so hard. She just means sort of doing that. And it, I um, this is as real as I can possibly get with you. Like people like. Uh, when you have a book coming out, it's supposed to be this great time, right? It's supposed to be this great time, and you have a book party, and you know, oh, this is great, and I want to throw you a party. I hate it, right? I love doing the books. I love reporting. I love digging. I love interviewing people. I love it. It's the best. The book coming out to me is torturous because you know, it's like the the curse of the definitive biography. You know, not everyone is going to love the portrayal. You know, not everyone's going to love how they're being portrayed. Um, it's awkward because these are people you sort of developed a relationship with. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you're, they're your best friends, but they're people you developed. I mean, I love Benita. I mean, I could not, I could not respect a person more than I respect Brett Favre's mother. I really mean that. There's not a person in this world who I've ever interviewed who I respect more than her. Um, there are going to be parts of this book that definitely hurt her feelings, and I hate that. I don't know how to avoid it. I, I because I don't want to be the guy who writes like the happy Brett Favre, you know, just the happy Brett Favre story. You know, I, 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 I never wanted to be that guy. The problem with that is you end up writing stuff that sometimes really bruises feelings and put stuff out there that sometimes a family would prefer is never out there. Right. Well, um, obviously, the apple didn't fall too far, but too far from the tree, right? Between Brett and his dad, I guess that's maybe inevitable when you're when you're Very, so close with somebody, the right? Are amazing. The parallels are amazing, and because um, people, you, you know, again, like I said earlier, like there's a simplistic narrative that we tend to adhere to. And the simplistic narrative was, ah, big old Irv and Nate Brett, and now they both love football, and look at these two guys. And I, again, I think Benita's a much more um, admirable character, I feel like, 
she was the one who endured this stuff. She knew what was going on. She sucked it up. She was an amazing mother. She kept raising the family. And meanwhile, the dad is like this guy. He never, you know, he was a guy who never gave birthday gifts. He never said, I love you. He didn't show affection. Um, you know, he demanded this stuff out of it. Now, you could say, look, Brett Favre ended up being Brett Favre, so that worked out well. And that's true. But, um, you know, there was very little affection from him, very little sort of, uh, I was going to say cuddling, I don't know another word, very little sort of outward love. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I had a great dad, and I would never want her Favre as a dad. Okay. Just being honest. Just being honest. Um, you, you, why, why the affection then for Benita? Just because she had to put up with all the surrounding stuff and keep the family together? Yeah. First of all, she's a special education teacher who raised her kids. She bring her kids to her class. She wanted them to know the kids. She wanted to see that not everyone had what you had. She taught them to treat people with respect. Um, she was a ridiculously open mind. I mean, you're talking about a woman who was brought up in Mississippi, right? In the 1950s and 60s. Um, they would have their black friends sleep over, which now sounds trivial, but back then in Mississippi, yeah. you, know, you couldn't, that was very unusual. And she was just really open-minded. Her house is like, people just come and go from that house. You know, it's so funny. I mean, even today, like people just show up and you never know, you can be interviewing Benita and three people just walk in and there they are. They just decide to show up. She's just like, she'll cook for you. She's just, uh, she's just, you know, she sent me home one time with maple syrup. No, vinegar, excuse me. Somebody home with this vinegar that she really likes. She's just, she's just a unique bird. She really is. She's a, I, even if she could say the worst things about me, she could read this book and hate this book and say Jeff Perlman is the worst human being on the planet, and I would have nothing but amazing things to say about her. That's how strong I feel about her. That's amazing. Same, is it the same story for Deanna that I'm, I'm guessing for having to put up with everything else? So Deanna wouldn't talk. So uh, Brett and Deanna didn't talk, but I will say this. That's really interesting. These are good questions, by the way. Um, De- so Deanna, like, um, if you talk to Brett's friends and colleagues, a lot of them hate Deanna. Like, can't stand Deanna. Really? And I actually, yeah, and I actually think what happens um, a lot in sports is the wives tend to be blamed for things that they shouldn't be blamed for. Like, um, you know, Brett was a mess. Mm-hmm. In those Super Bowl years and sort of right before and right after, he was a complete mess. He was an addict. Um, he was probably a drunk. You know, he drank too much. He was popping Vicodins and chasing it with alcohol. Um, he, was just, he was cocky. He was indifferent to his face. He was terrible. And she stuck by him. And she basically really pushed for him to get his life in order. Um, and she was, you know, her big thing was, you need to get rid of bad influences in your life. She meant people. Yeah. Another thing. So, so his running buddies, she was like, you really need to shed these people. And, um, you know, if you're one of the running buddies, you hate that and you blame her. So she actually caught a lot of grief in these people. And I, I can't imagine anything people think about, like Hillary Clinton standing by Bill Clinton. I always think, like, that's nothing compared to what Deanna Favre had to endure. And then on top of it all, after having cancer and having your husband cheat on you um, repeatedly, you, uh, again, he has a thing happen with the Jets, with a woman who's, whatever, 15, 20 years younger and looks just like the young Deanna. So the humiliation she endured from him and that she stuck by him, I mean, it's an ungodly amount of fortitude. On to the football part, um, you got a great part about his time in Atlanta and Jerry Glanville saying that 
asked him, uh, what school from Mississippi were you? And he said, Southern Miss. And he said, oh, we got the wrong quarterback. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's awesome. I mean, uh, basically what happened is leading up to the draft in 91, the general manager wanted Favre. Glanville and Coates wanted uh, Browning Nagel from Louisville. Right. Favre's college rival. And um, Kenny Herrick, the GM, initially said, no, we're taking Favre. And uh, they take Favre. And Glanville's pissed. Feels like he was overruled. So Favre shows up after holding out. That did not, that, that alone really pissed Glanville off. He has an agent threatening to go to Canada, blah, blah, blah. So he shows up. And Glanville goes, hey, Mississippi, Mississippi, get over here. Hey, coach. Mississippi, what school are you from? Uh, Southern Miss, coach. God damn it, we wanted the kid from Mississippi State. <laughs> the wrong quarterback. And, you know, Glanville's kind of just messing with him, but Favre is mortified. And, uh, you know, they, they, Favre thought he was going to be the backup to Chris Miller, and then they got Billy Joe Tolliver as the backup. Favre was the third string. He'd end up becoming this drunk, fat guy. Uh, you know, he, he was basically the show pony before games on the road. Glanville would take him out in the middle of the stadium and see if he could throw a ball and reach the upper deck. And he would bet guys, you know, like 100 bucks, Favre can do this, 100 bucks, Favre can do it. So he basically became the show pony, and he missed the team picture. And uh, he drove to the stadium. Uh, he drove to the facility for the team picture. He was late because he'd been hung over for the night before. And uh, Glanville goes up to him, and uh, Favre says, Coach, I'm so sorry. I was uh, stuck behind a train wreck. And Glambo says, boy, you were the train wreck. You are the train wreck. Oh, man. And uh, that kind of sums up his time in Atlanta. He was just a complete, he was a mess. He was an immature 22-year-old kid who didn't know how to handle it. You know, he's not the first. So the the trade to Green Bay, I mean, you would think that's the, the cure-all to all that. Is, and obviously it ended up being that. But, but was it that immediately, do you think? I think uh, Green Bay was a savior for him. And now he's still obviously partied and drank, cheated, yeah. blah, 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 all that stuff. Um, I really think it's kind of funny. He was in the same draft. There were two quarterbacks drafted ahead of him. Uh, Dan McGuire uh, from San Diego State and Todd Marinovich from USC. And the Marinovich story is a pretty well-known one. Yes. Drug addiction, out of football. I think Favre, had he stayed in Atlanta, it's not hard to imagine him going down that path as well. Because I just think, I don't know how much time you spend in Atlanta, but the nightlife, uh, it's, a, it's a very electric city. And I don't think Favre could have survived. You know, he was almost, the Jets were going to take him with a Falcon he would have been destroyed in New York at that point in his career. He would have just been over, overwhelmed. And uh, same with Atlanta. So I think Green Bay was the, I can't think of, I mean, you know, Green Bay, Cleveland, Cincinnati, there aren't that many spots in the NFL. That would have been ideal. Buffalo would have been good, but not that many that would have been ideal for him. And Green Bay was really the best possible place. You've written, obviously, a, I mean, you, you know your sports legends. You've written books on half of them. Um, He's a legendary figure, and it's hard to imagine a, a, a better fit, isn't there, than Green Bay, which was god-awful for forever, and they find this likable, charismatic um, guy who the people could just relate to. It seems like the, the perfect perfect marriage for a, a story like this. I think so. I think so. I mean, um, the other thing about Green Bay that's kind of cool, I didn't really, I, you know, going into this, I knew what everyone else knew about Green Bay sports. Um, it's kind of surface level. But I, I think, um, I don't know if it's like this everywhere. I don't think it's like it here in New York. But, you know, people were uh, appreciative of his sort of flaws and his realness. You know, like, yeah, people think of, of sort of Green Bay as a, as a pretty conservative spot and religiously and politically and blah, blah, blah. But 
but I think there was a genuine appreciation for a guy who wore it all on his sleeve and who seemed to come clean about his flaws and seemed to come clean about his scripts and even the way he played, you know? Running left, throwing right, throwing off the wrong foot, throwing really stupid interceptions at really inopportune times, then coming back with 48 seconds left on the clock, calling some audible, looking left, hitting whoever, you know, Andre Risen in the seam. I mean, there was a real, like, it probably would have worked out. I mean, he, I think he would have been appreciated anywhere, but I feel like there's something about him that just seemed real, like, blue-collar and real and authentic that went really well with Green Bay, Wisconsin. It's uh, it's funny you mentioned that um, Glanville. I mean, the, the whole Browning Nagel Brett Favre thing in Atlanta. It, it was the opposite with Brett Favre, with uh, with uh, with Ron Wolf. I mean, Wolf Wolf wanted Favre, and 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 the, and the Falcons ended up taking him. And then um, it's just it's the trade of the it's the trade of the century. I would say so, and it's kind of some funny little twist with that. So Wolf originally Wolf was actually with the Jets during the draft, right? Um, and he was. So upset when the Falcons took him, and he ended up with Brownie Nagel. You know, he thought Nagel was going to be a serviceable pro, but that was it. Uh, he was really upset. So then he gets hired by Atlanta. Uh, excuse me, he gets hired by Green Bay. And his first trip, he gets hired, and the team is uh, the team is playing in Atlanta. The Packers are going to Atlanta, and Wolf has one more scouting uh, assignment to do with the Jets, and that's in Atlanta. So he says he says to Bob Harlan, he says, "I'll meet you in Atlanta, and we'll talk." And he goes to Atlanta, and he basically says to Harlan, I'm going to go look at the Falcons' third quarterback, and if I like him, we're going to get him. And Harlan says, the third quarterback, and Bob Harlan has to look up on the roster. <laughs> who, this Brett, who is Brett Fevery? You know, who the hell is this guy? And, uh, you know, Wolf ends up, you know, he and Ken Herrick, the GM of the Falcons, were very good friends. And Herrick and the, the, the Packers had two first-round picks that year. And uh, Herrick said, well, two first-round picks for Brett Favre. And Wolf is like, are you, what? Your third-string quarterback is fat and drunk. I'm going to give you two first-round picks. He's like, I'll give you a second. And Herrick's like, all right, how about one of your first? We'll take your first first. And he's like, no, I'll give you my second first. So they end up trading uh, a pick for Favre. And the, the sort of interesting thing that people forget, the Falcons end up using the draft pick they got in that trade to take Tony Smith, right. halfback from Southern Miss, who was Brett Favre's teammate at Southern Miss. And not only was the Favre trade a disaster just for giving up Favre, but the pick was a disaster because Tony Smith couldn't stay on the field. Can you imagine in today's social media world how killed Ron Wolf would have been for over that trade? I mean, I, oh, man. it would have been horrible. It's like, you, wait, 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 wait. Just, you gave up a, a first-round pick for the third-string quarterback of the Atlanta Falcons? Are you what? <laughs> exactly. What? Are you kidding me? Yeah. It that. But then, you know, you know, we, yeah. I mean, it was one of the great, it's, it's a, it's a brilliant move, obviously. It's one of the great trades of all time. Um, you know, it's like getting the Cardinals getting Lou Brock for the Cubs times a thousand. So, uh, yeah, amazing. Great stuff. So we'll fast forward all the way to 2005 and obviously the, the very famous excerpt that's been released of uh, Aaron Rodgers calling Brett Favre Grandpa. What, a, what an introduction. It's, 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 hard, it's, hard, it's easy to see why there was... Yeah, I don't, I don't know if the animosity's ever gone away. I, I know... For the public image, I think everything's supposed to be all pretty. I, I don't, I'm not entirely sure that entirely sure that's true though between them. Well, I don't think it matters. Well, that's true. I mean, like it's kind of like it's like it's sort of like do I get along? Let's say I had a conflict with my my colleague 
20 years ago. Does that really matter for the seven times in the ensuing 20 years I've seen him? No. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't really matter. Like, they're not buddies. They're totally fine when they see each other. It seems cordial, but chilly. Uh, and it wasn't just the good, it wasn't just a good morning grandpa. It was, you're far, and you're the man, and this has been your job, and they've never tried to replace you. You know, he was, he was entrenched as a quarterback for a long time by that point. And suddenly they're using a first-round pick, a guy who was supposed to be arguably the first or second pick in the entire draft, and they're getting a quarterback. So Rodgers is this little cocky jerk. Favre is this overprotective kind of, you know, not going to help you. You're going to have to figure this out on your own, veteran. Um, I think it was definitely frosty. And the, 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 the funny thing is, this is without a question, uh, truth. We always want to think as sports fans that the veteran is helping the rookie. You know, like, ah, you're the, you're the fifth-year tight end, and they bring in a new tight end. They draft a rookie tight end in the second round. We always like to think that the veteran tight end is going to help them because it's all part of the team. That's crap. <laughs> about 2% of the time. I'm being serious about that. No. You know, Joe DiMaggio, Joe DiMaggio, the last thing he wanted to do was help Mickey Mantle. <laughs> you know, like, you don't want to help Walter Payton, Neil Anderson. He did nothing to help Neil Anderson. Like, this is your job. This is, there are things more important to you than winning a Super Bowl, winning a World Series. It's called getting a paycheck and lasting as long as you can and being able to care for your family. So, the criticism Favre might get for not helping Rodgers, he wasn't nice to him, but I'm not saying that's right. But I don't really blame a guy for not helping someone not helping someone groom, you know, groom them to replace them. I don't want to, if, if, if you told me tomorrow there was some guy who was going to take my books and write them better than me, you know, and, and I'm going to lose my payday and, and be phased out of this business, I'm not going to go out of my way to help them. I'm not going to be a jerk, but I'm not going to go out of my way to help them. So you're not going to hand over all 573 phone numbers from your interviews? <laughs> well, that's actually, a good, that's actually a good question because a lot of times people will be like, like every now and then, I mean, I, you know, I think all professions have it. Someone will say, hey, I'm doing a so-and-so. Let's say, like, I wrote a book about the 86 Mets years ago. And someone might say, hey, I'm doing a book about whatever, the 86 Mets or the history of the Mets. Do you think I can have all your contacts? Yeah, right. And I'm kind of like, no. You know, like, I'll help you. I'll give you advice. But I'm not giving you, I'm not giving you everything. Like, I worked hard to do this. And I think uh, that makes make me sound like the biggest jerk in the world. It doesn't mean I won't help someone. I'm just saying, like, I think if you're Brad Favre, yeah, I, I know you're here to replace me. I know you're the backup quarterback. I respect that. But I'm not going to teach you everything. Like, I want this job. To, to, uh, to wrap this up, you know, I asked you at the beginning about your, what your impressions were about far before the book. And now, now after, what are your impressions about the guy now? And is, and is, is that part of why he's just so beloved? Is because, in, in a way, he is, he is all of us. I mean, we've all screwed up in life, and we've all redeemed ourselves, and... But but he, to do it publicly for the whole world to see, and it seems to be part of the story, right? Why people embrace the guy so much, even now. All right, so I thought about that. That's a great question. I thought about this a lot. Like, um, remember last year after the Super Bowl, Tate Manning was like, "I'm going to go get a Budweiser." <laughs> remember that? Yeah, yeah. And, and and it was like heavily panned. And I remember thinking when he did this, God, this is such nonsense. Like, this is so stupid because it's so programmed and it feels like so almost. Like, you're trying to convince us. It just felt conniving. And um, people hate that stuff. And Favre's not that guy. Favre, yeah, Favre was burping, farting, drinking too much, being addicted to drugs, cheating on your wife, getting your uniform muddy, not listening to your coach, pissing your coach off, demanding a trade, uh, signing with the Jets, Minnesota, concussion. I mean, he's just this dirty ragdoll of a football player who happened to be 
blessed with a great arm and a really kind of winning personality. So I don't think he's the best quarterback ever. You probably don't either. I mean, I don't even know Packer fans who would say, but a few Packer fans, they were being honest, would say Brett Favre is the greatest quarterback ever. But what he was was ridiculously entertaining and human. So I think I, those appeal to me. That's a hell of a lot better than saying I'd rather be Brett Favre than Peyton Manning because I find him authentic and real, and I think there's value to that. Especially in today's sports world, right, where everyone is so sanitized and no one says anything, and everyone's yeah, boring by design. A hundred percent. I would take Favre over any of those guys. I really would. I just think was he the best ever? No, probably not. Was he the best entertaining quarterback ever? Hundred percent, yes. Thank you once again for author Jeff Perlman for taking some time to join me for the podcast. Remember his Brett Favre biography, Gunslinger, The Remarkable, Improbable, Iconic Life of Brett Favre, comes out today. And you can get it at all the usual online outlets, including Amazon.com. Thank you once again for listening. Have a great day, and I will talk to you tomorrow. Is democracy in danger or decline? Condoleezza Rice, William Galston, and Carlos Gutierrez and others take on this question in the fall edition of The Catalyst, a journal of ideas from the Bush Institute. Surveys show Americans place less trust in institutions like the media and business. Others contend America has faced far more challenging periods and emerged strong. Leading policymakers, Bush Institute experts, and respected journalists take on this debate. Read about it at bushcenter.org catalyst.